When a system fails, how do you think about cause and effect? Well, one way to think about this in complex systems is to use a model of a pile of sand. So I want you to imagine for a moment we have a table and one grain at a time, you're dropping sand on that table and you're dropping each of those grains in random positions. Now, as time passes, you'll start to build up sand on the table and you'll start to form little hills. And then eventually what's going to happen is a grain of sand is going to hit one of those hills and you're going to get an avalanche. And that avalanche may even cause further avalanches. Now, to talk about this sand pile model, we're joined by Neil Johnson, Professor of Physics and Head of the Dynamic Online Networks Lab at George Washington University. Because this sand pile model has profound implications when it comes to cause and effect. What it does is it asks you, do you believe the avalanche was caused by the last grain of sand that fell? Do you believe the avalanche happened because of the shape of the hill itself? This is Simplifying Complexity, a podcast where we explore the underlying principles of complex systems. Systems that seem to defy our rational view of the world, like economies, ecologies, or even you or me. I'm forensic engineer Sean Brady, and I'll be your host. Neil Johnson, welcome on the show. Thank you so much for having me. So we're going to talk about a few really interesting things today. One of them that's very dear to my heart, which was the first introduction I heard to complexity science, sand piles. But before we get into that, why don't we you know, have some background on, on why we're talking about what is quite a bizarre topic. Yeah, so this is one of the most interesting things about science in general. There's something deep in science and actually in everyday life and the history of the civilization in some sense, that is remarkably like a sand pile. So to explain that, let me backtrack a little bit and talk for a second about something that isn't like real life and the history, which is basically what we teach students. We teach students about a certain way that the world works, whether it be in physics or, or in, um, and we talk about the kind of mathematical descriptions of the world now. With words, of course, we can say all sorts of things, but with mathematics, we tend to say things like, oh, I have something sitting on a ball attached to a spring or something like that. And I jiggle it a little bit and it kind of oscillates around as the spring oscillates around and gradually that dies away and the thing just comes back to equilibrium. And this is something that students found hard. You know, I, oh, I dropped it, what Newton did. You know, oh, I drop an apple or I drop a ball or something to the floor and it turns out marvelously that what Newton said was, it doesn't matter what that object is, doesn't matter how heavy, you know, what its mass is, it will fall at the same time. The apple will fall at the same time as everything else. But we're all thinking to ourselves, wait a minute, when I see a piece of paper, for example, fluttering to the ground, I know that's going to take a lot longer than an apple falling to the ground. And so what are you telling me about the way we understand science, or at least an elementary level, that is completely different from my experience in the real world. Okay, carry that forward, the idea that somehow basic science is simplifying to the point that it's actually not true. 
what we're hearing. And you can kind of spread that across other subjects, you know, biology and chemistry, even economics, et cetera. We tend to talk about systems that are in some kind of equilibrium and have simple behaviors. Okay. Think for a moment about the piece of paper kind of fluttering down. You just take a piece of paper in your mind. We've all done it. You know, you've got the piece of paper up in the air. You let it go. It's going to kind of waft to one side and then it kind of jumps unexpectedly to the other side and then kind of flutters back. And it's kind of hard to predict actually what it would do, but it makes its way to the ground. It's going to a final state, but it does it in a sort of irregular way. Well, Actually, that's the way everything pretty much in real life works. And there's a simple reason. When we explain or we build models in physics, but also in economics, also in biology and also in chemistry, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, we assume that what makes that piece of paper kind of flutter around isn't there. In other words, the air buffeting it and pushing it and it kind of reacting and then the air pushing back and it reacting to... That kind of feedback process, we assume, isn't there. So we teach and we build theories of the world which are based on the idea that systems are essentially in equilibrium, that when they deviate from that, they do it in a simple way, and that there's none of this kind of funny business of kind of fluttering to one side in some unpredictable way. And why do we not teach that? Because we have no mathematics for that. Because we can't say that that's a deterministic type of system. I can absolutely say where that piece of paper is going to go. All I know is it's pretty much going to make its way to the ground. It's fascinating, isn't it? We had Brian Arthur on the show, and Brian talks about exactly the same thing from an economics perspective, where increasing returns wasn't being taken into account, positive feedback in the system, because mathematically it was too hard. And we had David Cracker on the show as well, and and David was saying, you know, there's a reason why we don't study out of equilibrium systems, because mathematically it's stunningly difficult. So before we get to the sampas, so am I right in articulating, Neil, that the consequence of what you're talking about there is because we believe the world is deterministic and we believe we can write the equations for it and know the initial conditions, we can calculate everything. Everything's predictable to some degree. And we've got, a, in many cases, a, a very clear relationship between cause and effect. Big causes make big effects and small causes make small effects. What you're talking about is that we know in the real world it's not quite like that because all these other factors come in and it's really difficult for us as ordinary human beings who've been sort of trained in the Newtonian world to think any differently about that. But what you're saying, this is where the sand pile comes in, isn't it? The sand pile is a different way of thinking about how a system works because of interactions? Correct. And it's a different way of thinking about what science am I trying to do of this system? Thinking of the piece of paper fluctuating each way, every which way and shifting around as it falls to the floor or a kid's sand pile. Let's just imagine that, you know, putting up, let's imagine back, you know, we're on the beach, we're all putting sand on the top and we're putting more and more sand and we're building some big tower. That is going to collapse at some time. What would I like to actually describe. If I was going to do a science of that, you might think, why am I doing a science of a kid's sandcastle? Well, because it encapsulates the same problem that we have. We can get into this in a a moment. In every living system, every living system is not in equilibrium. Equilibrium 
is something that unfortunately we will all achieve eventually. We will be long dead when we achieve it because it means all our atoms decay, our molecules decay, and they're just kind of sitting on the floor like apples, like Newton's apple kind of dropped on the floor. That's equilibrium for us. But life is out of equilibrium. Economics is out of equilibrium. Every science, everything you know is out of equilibrium. And this is the problem that we often have when we're teaching science. It's like, I'm going to teach you equilibrium science. The problem is we never say, by the way, everything that you have experience of in the world is non-equilibrium. But I can't teach you that because I have no mathematics of that. And I need to give you exams and you need to be trained. So I'm going to teach you equilibrium science. And there are a few things that it applies to, and I'll tell you those, and they will be the homework and the final exam. So that is the stumbling block that people have. People have a pretty good idea, actually, just out of experience that things fluctuate around. Your life fluctuates around. My life fluctuates around. But we have an idea to kind of more or less keep it on course unless there's some kind of big tipping point. So now to the sand pile. So Neil, can you pull back and tell us the history of this sand pile, starting with Parabac? Yes, so I remember hearing about this sand pile. I was studying some very esoteric thing in an area called condensed matter physics, which basically does as it says on the tin. It looks at matter that's condensed. So I was looking at something very esoteric. And I remember a graduate student, friend of mine, came up to me and said, you know what, I've just been to a lecture about sand piles. <laughs> and I said, how can, what on earth? I'm staring at these long equations that I've got in front of me. And you've been to a lecture on sand piles. That sounds infinitely more interesting than what I'm looking at. Can you tell me something about it? And so the story was that it was Pearback had come and visited the university. And he had in his mind that just as Brian Arthur very cleverly kind of encapsulated what goes on in the market by the so-called Elf-Farrell problem, prior to this, actually, Pierre Bach had encapsulated almost like what he didn't like. He was a physicist, but what he didn't like about standard physics, the kind that I was trying to do for my PhD. Somehow it was just treating the world as though it was in equilibrium and any time it was pushed away from it, it would go back there pretty quick. But Pear Back realized that this problem of the sand pile, just any of us trying to build a tower, just imagine you're trying to build one of those turrets on your sandcastle and you're dropping, but you're going to replace the sand instead of what I used to do. You know, once it collapsed, just clear off, you know, leave the beach, go home. No, you're going to drop new pieces of sand to replace those. And so he set up this sand pile idea because he realized, which is the, this is the clever part, that what happens if you keep feeding back the sand, so new sand is being dropped on the top. And it's been randomly dropped as well, isn't it? Yeah, yeah he's, you're not, we're not worrying about specifically dropping it in some clever position. So we're feeding in general a flux, as they call it in physics, of new sand to replace the sand that's somehow spilling off. And what he realized is this problem, it conserves on average the number of sand particles, because if I'm feeding in the same number that are kind of falling off to one side, well, pretty much it's like you've got people leaving a party and you've got people arriving. <laughs> the rate at which they leave the party is the same as the people around. You're going to have about the same number of people in your room. 
during the party. So he realized that this is a system that conserves on average over time, on average, the number of pieces. They also realized that this is a system that although it sounds like therefore it's in equilibrium, it's kind of on average, it's just constant in terms of number of particles, that it was doing some very dramatic things. After all, you add the sand in and just imagine in your head, the thing is going to collapse and you keep adding the sand, it will collapse again. But the way in which it collapses is not deterministic. It's unpredictable. And yet you know that it's going to keep collapsing. So it kind of shifts what question you're therefore going to ask about this system. So you've got a sand pile and you're dropping sand regularly, but randomly in space. So regularly in time, randomly in space. And sometimes when you drop a grain of sand, nothing will happen. It'll just land on the side of the tower. So you could drop another piece and nothing will happen either. But then eventually you get an avalanche. And how big or how small that avalanche is going to be totally dependent on the slope of that particular sand and, and where the sand new particle hits it and whether it sets off other avalanches in a chain reaction. And that's the bit you're saying it's not deterministic. So it looks like you've got this system where you're feeding in sand and sand's dropping out the bottom. But where those avalanches are happening and the extent of those avalanches, you just can't predict that. Correct. And so there's two huge important consequences of that. The first one is that it depends exactly as you said on the sort of situation that these new grains find themselves in. In other words, it depends on the history of these grains that are there and have been fed in and what they sort of did to each other. Because I can drop grain and sand, as you said, and it has no effect. And then in some moments, it causes a little bit of a slippage. And in some moments, it causes huge slippages. And so history matters in a system that is on average in equilibrium, sort of in an equilibrium. And yet it's alive somehow. You know, there are moments when it has small avalanches, so some big avalanche. And by avalanche, we don't mean this is after all just a sample, but against the size of the system that's there, the number of sand grains that slip at one time can be large. It can be like 50%. You know, as I remember back to some of my sandcastles, the whole thing went away in some, you know, one moment and the whole thing slips away. And sometimes it's only like little slippages. And so what Pearback cleverly realized was that this thing actually encapsulates what's going on in anything that isn't dead. Now, I was doing my PhD on things that were dead. Actually, they were never alive. I remember that from school. Is it dead? Is it alive? Or is it never been alive? I could never work it out. I thought, well, I'm not really, really sure. He realized that this is the crucial aspect of things that are alive. They may be in some local equilibrium. They look like they're kind of in, we don't call it an equilibrium. We call it really kind of a steady state. They're in some kind of steady state. In this case, for the sand piles, it's that the average number of particles is pretty much steady. So that's a steady state. And yet, it looks like it's alive. One minute, there's small things happening. One minute, there's large things happening. And nothing happens for a while. Things build up. And it's almost like there's this tension then because you've got all these sand piles and then everything kind of slips. Now, you transfer that even on the level of words to everyday life. Sounds like my life. Sounds like the financial market system. It sounds like biology. It sounds like real earthquakes. 
it sounds like real avalanches. And in fact, it sounds like everything that isn't just dead sitting on the floor like Newton's apple once you dropped it or a block of ice, which is dead and never been alive or whatever. That is an equilibrium system, something that's dead or never been alive. But everything we're interested in is alive in some way. It's evolving and adapting and history matters. So whether something's going to happen in the next few moments or not sort of depends on where this thing has come from. And I think, you know, any of us think about our own lives. Well, yeah, I mean, what we do from now on is not, I mean, clearly it's going to depend on our history, what we've done. You know, I, am I going to go and score three goals in a World Cup? No, because I can't play football. <laughs> it depends on my history. And yet that is a crucial assumption behind most of the science theory that we have that somehow the system forgets its history that in the end, it just kind of kicks off like a coin flipping. A coin, when you flip it, can't remember what happened to it the last time you flipped it. There's nothing in it because it's actually dead. It's not alive. But a system that is evolving that has had some avalanches and maybe not others, sort of remember the state that it's in is the memory of that. So you've got your sand pile and you're dropping your sand and history it matters and information matters in this sand pile as to what happened in previous steps and the slope that you drop the piece of sand on and all that sort of stuff. And Pearback called this self-organized criticality. Can you talk about what he means by that? So this brings us to the second part of the genius of Pearback. Because on the one side, he was saying that systems are history dependent, more fine, maybe... You know, that just means that, well, it evolves depending on what happened and nothing really exciting is going on. But the second part is related to this self-organization because going back to this sand pile, imagine we're just dropping then the pieces of sand on the top. Nobody's controlling all these pieces of sand. It's not like there's one CEO sand particle that's saying, okay, everybody, you know, everybody around me do this and the ones at the bottom stay there. And we'll have this next little avalanche here. No, the system is kind of organizing itself. So the natural way to describe this is it's self-organizing. And it clearly is because I'm dropping in just sand particles in some random way, which is not interesting. There's nothing interesting going. I'm not causing it to have these kind of sporadic blips of sand. In other words, these avalanches. But it is self-organizing itself to produce them. And in many ways, you could imagine something like a heart. For example, a heart is fed energy by the body. It doesn't feed it, just feeds it energy. And yet it manages to organize itself into some kind of regularity. Again, the genius of Fairback was to realize that although this self-organization, this sand pile, which is producing these kind of slippages of sand, which he calls avalanches, which is that's a good word. And they were of all sizes because sometimes there may be five grains of sand and sometimes there'll be 5,000 grains of sand. But you wouldn't expect that many big slippages. You'd expect lots and lots of little ones, less kind of medium-sized ones, and then a few really big ones. You know, that one just before you leave the beach and go home when you think, oh, I give up. If you keep doing that, if you had infinite patience and somebody allowed you to stay at the beach, you wanted to stay at the beach all night and keep doing this, 
and you were to take the sizes of the number of particles that fell in each slippage. You'd have to stay up all night, a lot of cups of coffee, just measuring the size of these slippages, like you would kids in a class of their heights. And now we're going to plot out now, not the number of kids of a certain height. We're going to plot out the number of avalanches of a certain size, where size is the number of particles, sand particles that fell. It's hard to count and we might be, you know, off by 20% or 30%. It doesn't matter because we're actually asking a question about the system at the system level. So we don't need it to be that precise. But the remarkable thing is, and people have now done this, plotting out not now a histogram of like number of kids in her class, which would be nice kind of peaked, kind of a upside down U-shape, so-called bell curve. What Pearback knew was that the shape of that distribution would not be like the bell curve because he knew that when you even just think of the simple sandpile problem, there are moments effectively have the equivalent of the 600 foot child. In other words, you drop sand on the sandpile and there are moments when there'll be a slippage, which is almost the size of the number of particles that you have. Whereas a lot of the time, the slippages is a tiny fraction. So, you know, like the smallest slippage might be, you know, five pieces of sand and the largest might be five million. And so you've got this huge scale of possible behaviors. Whereas, you know, we know from distributions, typical distributions, so-called normal distribution or the bell curve distribution that you don't have all the sizes of kids in a class. Thank goodness. You know, it goes from, I mean, we could say, take adults, let's just take adults. You know, it goes from five foot to seven foot something like that. It does not go from a fraction of an inch to three miles tall. And yet the sandpile slippages do. And when we plot out the number of avalanches of a certain size on log-log paper, we get a straight line, don't we? We're back to power laws and all the stuff we talked about in Jeffrey West's episodes. Exactly. The reason why I've found the sandpiles so incredible when I first came across it many years ago was that when you come from that very Newtonian tradition of cause and effect and direct relationships there, what I found incredible, because I was studying a lot of real failures in real life, both in engineering and in other systems, and that Newtonian approach never seemed to fully explain it. But then suddenly you come to the sandpiles, and I think the first thing that blew my mind about it was you could say, yes, that particular piece of sand falling did trigger that avalanche. But to say that the cause of the avalanche was purely due to that piece of sand falling, suddenly I had a light bulb moment that, no, it's not. That may have been the event that initiated it, but as you say, it's the history of the shape of the sand pile that caused the avalanche, and it was merely that piece of sand that made it happen. So that was the first thing that I found incredibly profound about. Then the second thing I found profound about it was that it produced a power law that you could draw essentially a straight line between the number of avalanches of a certain size that you had lots of small avalanches and you had a lot fewer big avalanches. But 
you could relate them to one another because you ended up with a, a straight line graph. And then what I found incredible was we see these parallels in other complex systems. We see it in the number of earthquakes we have in the world. We see it in all of the stuff we talked about with Jeffrey West and mammals and cities. And we can relate cities of a certain size versus cities of a smaller size in exactly the same way. So is it fair to say that when it comes to complexity science and where we see these parallels and we know local interactions have a big impact on how a system behaves. But this sand pile is almost like a one of the fundamental things you need to know. And this concept of self-organization is, is a fundamental concept of, of what makes a complex system a complex system. Yeah, I absolutely agree. In fact, there's um, we could take it even further. And in some sense, why isn't this among the first things you teach to kids? I mean, shouldn't this be the start of your learning process? Because once you've mastered exactly as you said, even just plotting it out, that, wait a minute, I'm getting the same distribution, unlike the first thing that they uh, kids ever, you know, do at what heights in a room or something like this. I'm getting the same distribution, whether I look at samples or whether I look at sizes of cities or stock market failures and crashes, I'm getting the same distribution. So Great. I've got a benchmark for how the real world is working, whether I'm talking about economics or life sciences or, you know, even the physical sciences or even for failures in materials, because after all, they're a build up in some sense of branching process, of feedback processes that kind of sometimes go to a scale that you notice, uh-oh, there's cracks in my airline wing, my airplanes, when I'm just about to get on the plane, I could see cracks. Or often stay at scales that you don't notice. Yeah, but that's just a scale of visual seeing. Those things cross all scales. So that should actually be the start in some sense of science, not, oh, I'm going to show you a whole bunch of things which are in equilibrium, and I'm not even going to mention anything that isn't in equilibrium. Neil, thank you very much for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to Simplifying Complexity, where we look at the key concepts of complexity science with expert minds from across the world. Concepts like emergence, self-organization, adaptation, networks, scaling, tipping points, and much more. This podcast was produced by Brady Haywood and Wavelength Creative. To make sure you don't miss an episode, be sure to subscribe to or follow the show in your podcast app. I'm Sean Brady, and I'll see you in our next episode. 